It's time now for the complete story with Rich Bot, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Rich Bot with today's complete story. Yes, folks, Rich Bot here back with you. Uh, glad to be sitting in for my dad while he's letting his voice rest. Thank you for your prayers and thank you for your many comments on our listener comment line, 1 800 345 2621. A lot of you have been praying for my dad and his voice, and we thank you for that. And uh, he'll be back on before too long. But today we have a special guest in our studio, uh, one of the great gospel preachers of our day. And uh, you know him from the Running to Win broadcast and also the Moody Church Hour, which we air on Bot Radio Network across across the whole network on most of these stations at 1 o'clock each afternoon. Now in Kansas City, it's also at 6.30 in the morning on AM 760, 101.5, and uh, also at 96.9. But the Running to Win broadcast. Dr. Lutzer is Pastor Emeritus of the historic Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois, and we're delighted to have him with us. He's just returned from an English Reformation tour, and so we're going to be delving into that with him today. Dr. Lutzer, welcome to Bot Radio Network. Thank you for being with us. So great to be with you today, Rich, and thank you for our vast audience that listens to Running to Win and we appreciate your partnership with us. Tell us about the, the history of the, the title, Running to Win. How did you select the name for the broadcast? Well, you know, I was in my study with our producer, and we were discussing what we should call the broadcast, and we were thinking of running the race. Mm-hmm. And uh, that whole idea, because it's visual, sounded very good to us. But in the middle of it, I said, you know, why don't we just call it Running to Win? We feel that Running to Win is memorable, It has visual uh, imagery connected with it. You're running the race of life. You're making it across the finish line. So that's how that came about. Now, most people, when they think of the Reformation, they think, first of all, of Germany. But you just came back from an English Reformation tour. What do we need to know about the English Reformation? You know, Rich, I've talked about Germany many, many times. I do have to say that in many respects, the Reformation in England is even more intriguing. In Germany, you have Martin Luther, of course. He uncovers the gospel, and then you have a whole series of events. What happens in England has to do with Henry VIII, and this is a fascinating story. And the reason that we're telling the story and the reason that I led a tour there is to help people to understand the price paid for the gospel. We're going to be talking about martyrdom, three very famous martyrs under Bloody Mm, Mary. mm -hmm. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But also the providence of God in the midst of it. Here you have Henry VIII, who is obsessed with wanting a son to succeed him. And in those days, up until that time, no woman had sat on the throne in England. So he's obsessed with having a son. He marries his brother's wife because of some uh, political intrigue, and she bears him only a daughter. Her name is Mary. Now, she's going to turn out to be Bloody Mary, Mm. so hang on to that name. She didn't start with that name. She didn't start with that (laughs) name, but she earned it, and uh, she earned it in a very bad way. So anyway, he wants an annulment from Catherine because he wants to marry Anne Boleyn. And And, uh, back in these days, this is all Catholic? Oh, that was simple. Absolutely. The The Pope could just simply say, I can give you an annulment. But this time the Pope couldn't because he was having trouble with uh, Charles V, the head of the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, Catherine of Aragon was his aunt, his aunt. So he didn't want to get into trouble with uh, Charles V, so he couldn't give the annulment. 
So, Henry says, you won't give me an annulment, and of course I'm summarizing a lot of history here, I'll declare myself the head of the Church of England. Thank you very much. It's called the Act of Supremacy. So uh, I am now the supreme head. You know, Pope, you're no longer any authority here in England. I'm the supreme authority and rich. Most people don't realize this, that every monarch since Henry VIII, including the present queen, is uh, known as the head of the Church of England. That goes back to Henry VIII. So, so the in England, the Reformation didn't begin over such a principle as the just shall live by faith, no, or faith alone. But it's uh, I want an annulment, and I'm going to have one. Uh, exactly, and I'm going to pro- proclaim myself as the head of the Church of England. By the way, you have to understand that Henry VIII and Martin Luther were contemporaries. So Luther writes this book on the fact that there are only two sacraments, not seven. Henry VIII, this is before he declares himself the head of the church, he writes a response defending the seven sacraments of the church, and Pope Leo says, Henry, you are such a great theologian. I have a brand new title for you. You are going to be known as the defender of the faith. And every monarch since, including the present queen, is known in England as the defender of the faith, going back to the time of the Reformation. So anyway, Henry marries Anne Boleyn. He has her beheaded because he accuses her of adultery. She does not bear him a son either. She bears him a daughter, and her name is Elizabeth. This becomes incredibly important. So everyone listening at this point, because she's going to turn out to be Elizabeth I. Now, Anne Boleyn was uh, was a friend of the Protestant faith. And uh, one of the things I did on the tour is every morning on the bus, I read a prayer from the prayer book of Anne Boleyn. And I mean, before she went to the stake, can you imagine this? She prayed something like this, Lord Jesus, I commit myself into thy hands because you shed your blood on the cross on behalf of my sins. So Anne Boleyn is the second wife, and she, she, is, she bore Elizabeth, yes. and you said she was of the Protestant faith, uh-huh. and you said something about the stake. Uh, so, yeah, well, she, so, she was taken to the uh, stake and, and uh, be executed. Wow. Yeah, wow. he executed her. And the reason that he executed her is he was interested in somebody else. Her name was Jane Seymour, and she bore him a child. And I know that this gets complicated, but you have to hang in on this. And his name is going to be Edward. So at last, he has a son. But Jane Seymour dies about six months after the baby is born. Then he marries Anne of Cleves. We won't go into that. That was a disastrous marriage. It was never consummated. Then Catherine Howard, who was a very sensual woman, whom he also had executed because of adultery. And then Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr was an evangelical Christian. And she wrote a book entitled The Lamentations of a Sinner. And on the tour, I read sections of it almost every day to the tour people, that here was this woman who was married to this man, and Henry continued to remain a Catholic, okay, totally devoted to the Catholic Church, but he marries this woman, and she is the one who has input into Edward's life and her stepchild by the name of Elizabeth. 
and she's going to turn out to be Elizabeth I. Now, people who are listening say, Pastor Lutzer, this is getting complicated, but that's okay. Just hang in with me now, and you'll understand its importance. Okay, but I'm confused here at a moment. Uh, you said Henry continued to be Catholic, but you said that he broke with the Pope over this first annulment. Yes, exactly. And declared he, himself to be the head of the Church yeah, in England. But but still, that was still, still an ardent Catholic. Oh, I didn't understand Absolutely that. committed to the Catholic faith, but now he's the head of the Church. And uh, guess what? Uh, the Pope isn't. Mm. So that was the big break. Okay, now Henry dies. He dies after bringing about some Protestant reforms without wanting to. For example, one of the things he did is he was convinced by some people who were tending toward Protestantism. They said, you know, Henry, if you had the Bible read in all the churches in England, what that would do is it would solidify your break with the Pope and would solidify, you know, you being the head of the church. So Henry goes ahead and says, okay, all the Bibles can be read in the churches in England. Well, of course. In the English language? In the English language, as much as possible, because of uh, Tyndale and so forth, and Wycliffe, I should say. So, of course, as a result of that, the Protestant Reformation is actually solidified. All right, now, Henry's dead. So, he has a sequence that he wants his children to rule. The first is Edward. After all, that was his son, right? So Edward rules, but he dies, I think it was at the age of 15. And the next ruler is uh, Mary. And Mary is the daughter of Catherine of Aragon from Spain. She was from Spain, a very devout Catholic. So Mary, and now we're talking about Bloody Mary, she sees herself as having the responsibility to restore Protestantism to England, excuse me, to restore Catholicism to England, and to do away with Protestant influences. And by the way, many of those influences came from Luther, believe Mm -hmm. it or not. Luther's writings were burned on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. It was a different St. Paul than is there today. It was rebuilt. But the point is that Protestantism was beginning to grow underground, so to speak, and it was really loosed from Catholicism because, after all, uh, the Protestants, uh, you know, England was no longer under the Pope. Help help fix this in time for me. Is this the 1400s, the 1500s? uh, It's the 1500s. It's the time of Martin Luther. Ah. Yes, and uh, I think that Henry died something like 1546, okay. almost the same time as Luther. So Columbus so, was 1492. This is a yeah. years following that. Right. So anyway, now we have Bloody Mary who wants to turn back the clock to Catholicism and get rid of these pesty Protestants. And now what I'd like to do is to talk about martyrdom for a moment, mm-hmm. okay? She kills about 280 to 300 Protestants. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. That's where she got her name. But there are three that are most important and famous, and they were burned in Oxford. So when we were there with the tour, we where were the, in Where Oxford. the school is, where the university, the yeah, famous very Oxford close. University. Very close to the university. And you can actually see where the fire was. What they did is on pavement now, because there's a street there, they allowed some bricks to remain as bricks to show where the fire was, where these three were burned. But let me tell you Mm. about their burning. It is an incredible story. First of all, there were two that were burned, one whose name was Ridley and the other was Hugh Latimer. 
So these guys, Hugh Latimer was a preacher, Ridley was the Bishop of London, but he had gone Protestant, and Bloody Mary thought that if she takes care of these guys, then England will turn back to Catholicism. So she has them burned. Hugh Latimer burns quite quickly, and he says something to Ridley that became famous in all of history. As he was burning, he said, play the man, Ridley. Today we shall light a fire in England, a candle in England that will never go out. So Hugh Latimer is thrown into the fire and he burns quickly. Ridley, not so much. What happened is, if you can just visualize this for a moment, the fire is coming up on him and it keeps burning him, but it only burns his legs because the fire was not strong enough to engulf him. And they had put some dynamite around his neck in sacks with the hope that the dynamite would explode and therefore it would bring him to a quick end. But that didn't happen for a long time. So he is there agonizing in the fire and urging them, bring me into the flames, bring me into the flames. And eventually, of course, he dies. Watching it is the man who had been appointed by Henry as Archbishop of Canterbury, whose name was Cranmer. Now, Cranmer had become Protestant. He actually had written, you know, the 39 articles of the Anglican Church and so forth. He had written these things and uh, so forth. But under pressure, because he was asked, he really was almost forced to watch his friends burn. Under pressure, as an old man, he denied the faith. He wrote various documents saying that he affirmed the authority of the Catholic Church, the authority of the Pope. See, Bloody Mary actually wanted to reaffirm the authority of the Pope, even though her father had uh, denied the Pope any authority. She wanted to go back to a thoroughly Catholic country. And so he writes several documents and signs them that he denied the faith. Now, here's where it gets exciting. He is brought to St. Mary's Church in Oxford, and it was a church in which we were as a tour group. I think that this was in many respects the highlight of our visit, even though there are more exciting things that we can talk about in a moment about Scotland. But he was brought to the church, and a platform was built for him. And Rich, here's the amazing thing. In that church, you can actually see a, um, a pillar with part of it chiseled out, and that's known as Cranmer's Pillar, because they actually built this platform and chiseled out part of a pillar so that he could stand on this and give his speech. Because even though he denied the faith, Bloody Mary said, I'm going to have you burn anyway, because you're the one that negotiated the divorce between my mother, Catherine of Aragon, and Henry VIII, and so you're going to die. So he mounts the speech. I want everybody to catch this now. The church is filled with Catholics who are jubilant and Protestants who are downhearted and very disappointed, but they are there to watch the spectacle. So what happens is Cranmer mounts the platform and he gives a speech in which he said, there's something on my conscience that I need to tell you. And I'm summarizing the speech. And basically it is this. I denied the faith because of the, of the uh, torture that I saw my friends go through. But I am dying as a Protestant with my faith in Jesus Christ. And this hand that signed the renunciation 
that denied the faith, let this hand burn first in the fire. Well, the Catholics were absolutely uh, angry, and they took him to the burning place, and it's about, I'd say, two or three hundred yards away. And on the way, they tried to get him to deny the faith again, but he said, no, I'm dying with my faith in Jesus Christ. And let this hand that signed the renunciation be the first to burn. So he renounced his renunciation, and observers said that he put his hand in the fire until it was like a cinder, and it burned first. And he kept saying, this hand, this hand, this hand that signed the renunciation let it burn first. So he, uh, he died, obviously, also a martyr. Right. Now, so, here's... Okay, uh, go let ahead. me ask you this now. Sure. So, so he, he renounced his renunciation. Exactly. But, but what's interesting to me is um, that these men were willing to die for their faith. But what was that issue there between being a Protestant and being a Catholic such that they were willing to to die for it? There must have been some overarching uh, theological understanding or commitment that, that they just could not uh, bring themselves to renounce. And what was that? What was the distinguishing feature back then in the, in the 1500s especially, and maybe, yeah. maybe still today, but what, what was that that drove them to The whole to thing is this. Are we going fidelity? to be under the authority of the church and its sacraments and all of its works righteousness? Or are we going to accept the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ as Protestants without believing that salvation came through the church, as the Catholic Church had taught? Are we going to continue to pray to Mary and to the saints and all of the things that have grown up around Catholicism? And the answer of the Protestants was no. Uh, We're going to put our faith in Christ, and we will not be bound by the rituals and the authority of the church. So it was the same issue that really... Uh, people encountered in Germany. So, the, But the freedom of religion that we enjoy in America, which is a gift of God, which is um, protected by our Constitution, uh, is not given to us by the Constitution, is given to us by God, is protected by the Constitution, is something that's really an aberration in history. It's not something that's normal. It's not the normal course of things that we have religious freedom and liberty to worship God as the dictates of our conscience would, would express. Uh, so back here in the 1500s in, in England, uh, people were dying uh, for these these, these theological distinctions. Exactly. And as far as America is concerned, it's an anomaly. Mm-hmm. I once gave a lecture on the history of freedom of religion in Europe, and it's very complicated. I won't go into it here. But the idea that a person can worship according to his conscience and belong to a different religion or a religion of his choice and still be a good citizen of that country is a novel idea. Mm. What was rampant in those days was, and especially in Scotland, that we can also get to here briefly, especially in Scotland was the religion of the ruler had to become the religion of the people. Uh So when Mary, Queen of Scots, for example, was, and she is not Bloody Mary, by the way, those are two different Marys. When Mary, Queen of Scots, would uh, say that from now on we're going to be Catholic, everybody should... uh, participate in the Mass, everybody's supposed to be Catholic. Of course, John Knox stood against that, and we can talk about that. But uh, when a Protestant was ruling, now the Mass is outlawed. Uh, 
The Mass is now illegal. It always had to do with the leader. And even in Germany, as freedom of religion became eventually true in Europe in uh, 1648 at the Peace of Westphalia, even during those periods of time, it was assumed that you had to have the religion of the ruler. That's why Christians died in early Rome, by the way. Mm. The mm-hmm. reason that they had to give allegiance to the emperor was it was unthinkable in those days that you could be a good citizen of the Roman Empire and at the same time not swear allegiance to Caesar. You could not have that freedom of religion. The belief was then you can't be a good citizen and you can't be trusted. Well, that's why I love our Pledge of Allegiance as one nation under God. Uh, so our, our supreme authority is is the Lord. Uh, we just have a few more minutes left, and this is just a fascinating discussion with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, the host of the Running to Win radio broadcast, pastor emeritus of the Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, you've just returned from a tour, a Reformation tour of the British Isles. And are, are you going to be having another one, or are there other tours that people could sign up for? And uh, uh, tell us about that. Well, our next tour actually is going to be to Israel in March of 2019, next March. And then after that, uh, also next year, God willing, in October, I'm going to be leading a tour and actually the teacher on a tour on a cruise up the Rhine River. And that'll include a lot of the Reformation sites. So those are the only ones. I, I, uh, we had such a wonderful time in England and Scotland, but I don't have any plans to do that again, although I might. Well, uh, for these other tours, where could people go for more information or to sign up? The best way to try to keep up with us is go to moodymedia.org. That's moodymedia.org. Not sure if right now yet all the information is there for our tour to Israel and for the tour uh, up the Rhine River, but it will be shortly. So moodymedia.org. And, uh, and there'll be information on your radio broadcast, Running to Win, as well. That's right. So in the closing minutes, uh, tell us a little bit more of this tour and, and maybe a bit about Scotland. Scotland, very interesting. You have uh, George Wishart, who was burned to death. Again, we are talking about martyrdom. Is that you where can, Presbyterian people come from? That's where Presbyterian co- people come from. It's because of John Knox, who studied under Calvin. He comes and he turns Scotland into a Presbyterian country, a very strong Protestant country, and uh, it is because of his influence. But Mary, Queen of Scots, gives him a hard time. One quick thing, Mary, Queen of Scots, dies, and she has a son. By now, of course, Elizabeth I is reigning on the uh, throne of England. She has no child, so the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, comes to England and is crowned. And as a result of that, what do we have? We have the United Kingdom. Hmm. We no longer have two different uh, kings and queens between Scotland and England that we used to have because of the United Kingdom, all going back 500 years during the time of Mary, Queen of Scots, John Knox, and John Calvin. So these are our histories. And the big takeaway, Rich, is the price that people have paid for the gospel. And uh, what we're going through in America here is nothing in comparison to the kinds of uh, struggles that people have had to endure in past centuries. So all of this was going on in the 1500s, and then we had the pilgrims, the Puritans, in uh, 1622, was it, when they came to uh, the Plymouth Plantation? Were were the pilgrims um, influenced by all of this and, and an outgrowth or a continuation of this turmoil? 
well, and this idea of religious they, what liberty. What did they bring with them? They brought the Geneva Bible. Where did the Geneva Bible come from? It was a translation of the Bible into English in Geneva made by people who came there to escape the persecutions of Bloody Mary. Oh. What happened is— and Geneva, and Switzerland. Geneva, Switzerland. Calvin welcomed uh, the various people from England who were to be put to death by uh, Bloody Mary— and they came there, and they had some scholars among them, and they said, you know, we need a good translation of the Bible into English. So they make the Geneva Bible, and what is the Bible that the pilgrims bring to America? Uh, it is the Geneva Bible. So they were Calvinists. Uh, they were basically uh, greatly influenced by Presbyterianism, and that is their history. And uh, everything that you and I know about has been built, really, on previous uh, foundations and previous uh, experiences. So was that was the primary issue justification by faith alone? The primary issue, and even more basically, was the question of authority. Namely, is the Bible alone our basis of authority or church tradition? Church tradition said that we should pray to Mary. Church tradition said that, uh, you know, we can uh, pray to the saints. Church tradition said that it is through the sacraments that salvation comes Church tradition said that the body and the blood of Christ are literally transformed by a miracle that is done by a priest. Mm. All of these traditions came along, that the papacy was to be obeyed without any question, and that's what church tradition was all about. The question was, is it the Bible alone? And then mm -hmm. out of that, you have justification. Well, in our day, we see alone. Christians being marched along the beach to be beheaded for their faith, and they're asked to recant by ISIS, and, and they, they say, no, we're, we're, we remain true to the Lord even unto death. So what happened in the 1500s continues to happen in our day today. And uh, we need to be faithful to the Lord. We need to be faithful to the teaching of, of the Word of God and be willing to die if it comes to that. But also important as Americans, it's important that we preserve and protect the notion of religious liberty that we so often take for granted. Exactly. And as far as American Christians are concerned, most of us aren't um, asked to die for our faith. But think of all the Christians out there who are so weak-willed that they're not willing to stand for Christ in their workplace or anything, mm -hmm. even though their life isn't at stake. So we have a lot to learn from those right. who preceded us. Well, Dr. Luster, our time is all gone and has gone by so quickly. Thank you for being with us in the studio to share with us about the English Reformation and the lessons that we can learn from it. This is Rich Bott, and thank you for listening to The Complete Story. Once again, our listener comment line is 1-800-345-2621. Dr. Luster, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Rich. <laughs> 